This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. When you hear the word misogyny, do you think of politics? It's a subject that has been cleverly crafted into a crime novel, The Unbelieved by Vicky Petratus. Welcome, Vicky. Thank you for having me. We first meet Antigone Pollard. She's the new woman in town. She's at a bar having a drink and gets harassed by a drunken older man. Then the handsome Jack comes to her rescue. <gasps> Is it going to be romance? No. Very much a surprise for the reader. So just tell us briefly what happens there. There's a headbutt involved <laughs> there, just to cut a long story short. I wanted to purposefully set that up to have the reader think that it could be. And then there's a switch when Antigone starts to feel a little sleepy really quickly. And the reader says, uh-oh. Mm, uh-oh, all right. An attempted rape. So she's the new senior detective at Deception Bay investigating a series of reported rapes in the area. But rapes are hard to prove, even attempted ones. Now, through this book, Vicky, you explain the problem of women reporting rape and what happens to them. The statistics are rather frightening. They're very frightening and they're kind of hard to, they're, they're hard to find. So I'm doing PhD research and it, it's really hard to find them laid out. But they've been reported as as low as conviction rates for sexual assault against women and children, are as low as 4%, mm. a 4% conviction rate. So offenders or alleged offenders have a 96% chance of being found not guilty before they even walk through the door of the court. And that is worrying for any female that you know that may be targeted that you think that your chances of justice are super low. Mm. Well, you've written many true crime novels, but this is fiction, so we need to get back to the characters and the plot and the setting. She gets threats, just you wait, bitch. I'll get you when you least expect it. And you have Antigone living rather remotely. Where is she? She's in a country town that I created because I realised very quickly the problems of having a country town that's a real country town because if you're going to suggest that the mayor might be a bit dodgy or the you know the senior sergeant might be a bit dodgy, um, you have to not have it in a real one. <laughs> the cover picture is of a woman standing alone on a sheer cliff at the coast. And this is where I'd like you to read from page 71. The ocean pulled me like a magnet and instead of heading for the homestead, I drove to the cliffs of Deception Bay. The sea was in a mood. A cold wind blew off Bass Strait. I got out of the car and walked to the edge of the Devil's Corner lookout. Ignoring the signs and maps and tourist information, I leaned on the railing and let the wind lift my hair. A long way below, the dark waves crashed against the rocks at the bottom of the cliff. It was nature's demonstration that beauty and tragedy could exist together. Mm, yes. And another quote from the book, Deception Bay got its name from its deceptive coastal waters, calm on the surface, but with jagged and dangerous rocks beneath. All around this coastline is where Antigone often used to run with her dog, Waffles. Now, Waffles, I'm thinking a little fluffy terrier, not quite right. 
No, so Waffles is a failed police dog. And when I wrote my book on the dog squad, I heard that the police dogs go through all of the training, but if they get to the end of it and they're not quite aggressive enough or their tracking isn't quite up to standard, they can get adopted by police officers. And so when Antigone moves to the country, she moves to her nan's farm. There's always dogs on the farm. There has always been in the past. And she says, you know, I need to I need to get a dog. So she adopts a police dog. <laughs> and so Waffles is highly trained and she kind of keeps up that training and tracking. And, and so Waffles is, it's like I wanted to create this character, kind of like Wolf Girl, you know, walking through the world with this black German shepherd by her side. And if she's ever in jeopardy, when she's mm. with the dog, uh, her and the dog work as a very smooth team. And they appear too in this book. The other interesting misleading name is Waza. I never thought I would feel a touch of sentiment for a guy called Waza. So I, how does he I fit know, in? right? <laughs> so I wanted Antigone to have... I think sometimes you read a crime novel and the female protagonist is up against everybody. And I, I don't think life is like that. Mm. I think that you certainly have people that you have to butt heads with, and she certainly does, Antigone does in the novel. But I wanted her to have a partner, a detective partner, who was just who just got it. And he was able to be her support and he was able to be by her side. In a lot of ways, Waza is just as gagged as she is. Mm. So if the boss comes in and has a rant or a rave to her, he doesn't feel like he can say anything either because, you know, he, he, it's it's this hierarchy and your job's yeah. at risk and it's your mortgage and so many people in workplaces get trapped, men and women, uh, get trapped in that kind of, I can't say anything because it's a career-limiting move. Well, let's hear a little bit from page 49 about her boss because Waza and she were good together, but Senior Sergeant Bill Weller, how did he talk to her? Um, it's like, hmm, Wheeler looked me up and down and then left the office without further comment. I watched him go, unsettled by the exchange. I found men like him hard to read. It was as if they studied ways to dismiss women and leave them feeling uncomfortable. Not only was it rude, but it was bad policing and bad leadership. Right. So the community of Deception Bay. Prior to Antigone coming, the last crime wave involved a group of teens smashing letterboxes. But ten years earlier, there had been a crime and the locals didn't talk about it. What happened there? This there's, starts the book yeah, too. Yeah, it starts the book in that there's what looks like a murder-suicide and a small child is left on her own. And it's kind of the shame of the town in a lot of ways because the police came in and they suggested that the husband had killed the wife and then killed himself. And Antigone only has to look at the crime scene photos mm. to say, there's yes. something really fishy here. But when you've got a crime no one talks about then it's, it's never going to be questioned. The orphan daughter is now 14 and Antigone met her as she was caught shoplifting. This case has worked out to everyone's benefit and it's here that we meet Norma O'Mealy. What a gem. Tell us more about her. Yeah, I think I based her on my nana. Um, <laughs> yeah, Norma plays a really important role in that she's the head of the CWA, but she's also a professional woman. She's a, a pharmacist and she works in the pharmacy a couple of days a week. 
And I think I really liked the character of Norma because she brings this collegiality and this support for women. And Norma in her 70s begins to really question. There's one woman on the CWA that's clearly got swelling and bruising Mm. and, you know, it's hidden with makeup. And Norma's like, why are we silent about this? Silence is a woman's worst enemy. And so Norma... When Antigone gets to town and and she takes down Jack with a headbutt and I think the CWA invite her to give a talk and just about protecting women and I think it opens up this Pandora's box because all of them realise that they are all part of the, you know, the habit of hiding Mm. and then all of a sudden these things aren't hidden and when they're not hidden, the power floats away. At this uh, personal safety talk, the women ask Antigone to put on a defence course for them. And the reaction of her boss, I thought that was just, just incredible. Was he uh, sort of saying, oh, this is a good idea? The men don't like women's pushback. And we see this in society. We see it on the news. We're seeing it on the news at the moment. And so the minute that she suggests that she could empower women, physically empower them to fight back, the boss does this switching and gaslighting when he says oh well we're going to get start to get complaints where you know mrs so-and-so has assaulted her husband and antigone can't believe that when you're empowering women to fight back against violence that it could possibly that could possibly be bad i loved I'd, I'd never heard this quote before and it comes from the unbelieve by vicky Petrasis. uh was said talking about their boss that guy fell out of the asshole tree and hit every branch coming down. Yeah, that's an oldie but a goodie, I think. <laughs> I really like that one. Uh, no, that, I didn't make that up. That, that's, uh... So, well, Meg, she's 18-year-old. She's picked up walking the highway one morning. So what's this about? The, the whole point of The Unbelieved is that when we don't believe women and we don't believe the first victims... The offending never stops Mm. and so Meg is proof that she goes out to celebrate her 18th birthday and she is um, separated from the herd and she is taken and she is found walking along the road. And so she is the victim and the very sympathetic victim. She's still a school kid Mm. that, you know, that, that when we don't investigate these things, she's going to be targeted and then we don't if we still don't investigate them someone else is going to be targeted but i really like the character of meg because in a lot of ways antigone has had a case in melbourne that's gone horribly wrong and meg kind of reminds her of the victim Mm. in melbourne and i think it's probably her chance to not redeem herself because she doesn't feel she didn't do anything wrong. She did the best that she could. But also Meg fights back and Meg is really typical of the real victims that I interview in that they are damaged by what happened but they're strong and they're not going to be defined by it. And I think it's too easy to write women characters that faint onto the settee and need smelling salts oh, or that are damaged forever. And, and women aren't like that. So I, I really liked creating Meg as a fighter. Yeah. There's another quote too, you know, about girls going out having a few drinks. And what would you expect? Well, says one of the girls, to feel a bit seedy the next morning, not gang rape. You know, and it's these things that have come through this book. 
Talkback Radio. Oh, that fires up because through this book, there's a very interesting use of interview technique. You know, we actually get the interviews by the police and the victims and also Talkback Radio and people who phone in and just the prejudice there. It was just, oh, incredible. It all comes down to another quote. I had watched the law triumph over justice and it tasted like ashes. The innocent until proven guilty thing means that men walk into court innocent and then most of them bloody stay that way. We've got a fiction, we've got a lot of characters and really good characters so I'm really delighted although this book comes to a a conclusion that we're going to have Antigone Pollard in Deception Bay again. Yeah, you know, she's too good to not continue with. And luckily, I'd already started the sequel last year before the announcement was made, before the book came out. But after I heard that I won the Allen and Unwin Crime Prize, and I, I just had this idea one day and went, oh my God, I've got just got to start writing. And then a lot of the reviews now are people saying we want more um, of Antigone and Waffles and Wazza. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> as fast as I can. <laughs> You've written, as I said, a lot of true crime novels and I think you speak a lot about true crime and the but another quote paperwork and time the two things tv cop shows got so wrong yes (laughs) every cop will say that um yeah just everything isn't neatly tied away and I think that's very much from my true crime background and I think people appreciate that understanding and knowledge that I've gained over 30 years and it all just seeps in and this paperwork and affidavits and there's part of this even in the first scene when they want to search his house they can't just go and search given that they've just arrested someone that they think might be a serial rapist they have to you know get a judge to sign off on the Mm. affidavits and you know it's all just so you know I think a lot of professions are suffering from way too much paperwork. His Honour Charles Buckley the on-call magistrate how was he described as? Um, A misogynistic yeah, yeah, she doesn't mince words with him. And and I based him around many, many years ago. I went into the Melbourne Magistrates Court and I saw this magistrate, I don't, I don't know who it was, but I saw this magistrate confiscate phones, like a phone buzzed and he's like, right, in the bin. And I'm like, I'm totally stealing that, you know, because everything to a writer's brain is fodder and we move through our world. And I just thought that kind of attitude, how can you be a fair and just magistrate when you're, Behave a bit like an asshole. <laughs> Excuse <laughs> my French. <laughs> Sexual assault can happen anywhere, but in a small town, how hard is it to prove and get justice? Vicky Petratus won the Allen and Unwin Crime Fiction Prize with her book, The Unbelieved. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you. And now for a little bit of indulgence, I've got Tuion's collection of poetry called Decadence. Oh. The word decadence means luxurious self-indulgence. It's also the title of Tuion's latest collection of poetry, Decadence. So, Tui, welcome to 3CR. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. There are three main sections to this work, meta, physical and spaces. So we may just indulge ourselves by looking at one or two poems from each section. And you begin the meta section, with a poem entitled 26 Soldiers. 
A small army pressed into service from cap line to base line, marching smartly across the page, some with proud embellishments on standard issue typeface, a swash here, a serif there, tracking tightly in different formations, ablaze with world-building directives, trailing bullet points in their wake, and a single orphan. The indulgence in language and grammar, even, that comes out in this meta section. I really wanted to start off with that because when you just think of the title, you're thinking, right, I'm going to be writing a poem about, I don't know, the army or something. But once you actually get into it, it's a very playful poem, obviously, about the alphabet. And the way it's called Meta is is obviously being very self-consciously looking at language and grammar and punctuation and typography and all the things that I'm fascinated by and obsessed with. Well, it goes into the notion of meta-language, what's behind the language, and you're finding a voice, dare I say it, in the grammar, which is a lot of fun. I mean, talking about fun and talking about suggestiveness, we've got one here called Word Slut. I'm so lascivious. I don't care which ones I go with. Roll around with those short, nubby ones. The long, elegant ones. The ones from a mongrel mixed race that fit like rough marbles in your mouth. A bit of this at the front, a bit of that at the rear. Polysyllables that jostle for equal attention. The everyday vanilla ones and the special occasions only used to impress such oral delights. I like them every which way. You're teasing us here. I am. I, I wanted it to be a very mischievous, playful collection. And on the whole, I mean, there's sort of slightly more serious poems as the collection develops further in the other sections. But I wanted to open up with something quite decadent, quite silly, quite luxuriously fun. You know, a lot of people think poetry can be quite worthy and almost, you know, good for you, but not necessarily fun. So I really wanted to provoke people and to turn that against itself really. But you're teasing, and I'm teasing the reader. That's exactly what I wanted to do because people think of the word decadence and they think food and they think sex so I thought I'm going to write one about words. But how else do we get the food we want or the sex yes. we want without the words? Without the words you have to be beguiled you have to be seduced and I am seduced by words and this is a true story. I you know, found one of my ex-lovers because he was a fantastic Scrabble player he seduced me by his Scrabble playing. And, you know, that was like, wow, okay, I have to meet you now. <laughs> well, so, did, yes. did you give him points per tile? He, he <laughs> no, he, was, he kept winning me, David. He kept beating me all the time. I thought, this is before we'd ever met. We played countless games of Scrabble, and I was so intrigued by this man who kept beating me, and I thought, I have to meet you. So this is how it gets to me. Not, not I don't care about your bank accounts or, you know what job you do, if you actually can show me that you're good with words, I am intrigued. Was it the size of his lexicon that got you? It was. It was the size of his lexicon and what he did with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, even even in your dedication, dedicated to decadent word wranglers, bibliophiles and practitioners of semicolons and Oxford commas. I mean, how many people actually find fun in the Oxford comma? Oh, there are legions of people who argue for and against, and this is the book for them, you know. And now the other section is physical. And if we look at that, this starts to become somewhat more personal and, for that matter, more seductive. So in the section physical, we've got one entitled Sorbet. 
I'm no phoneticist, but the roll of your name in my devoted mouth, just a single syllable ending in the parting of lips like a tingle of sorbet. Your name is a neutraliser, sugar pills of magic, talisman against hurt to breathe in and swallow. It's not directly stated, it's understated, but it's there. A lot of my poetry is never really explicit. It's suggestive and, yeah, it teases the reader. You have to sort of make up your own mind what it is I'm talking about. I'm not going to spell it out for you. And that's the joy of poetry. It's concise and also leaves enough blanks and spaces. But the role of the words across the page is sensuous. Mm -hmm. And, And so it's not the words you haven't actually stated things explicitly, but no. it's the sensuousness yes. of the words that actually tell you what is happening. What's happening, and that's, that's part of the, uh, you know, the underlying theme of decadence, really. Well, speaking of decadence, there is the eponymous uh, poem, Decadence, lying on your side in concavity, spoon nesting the warmth of skin, your breath on my shoulder, an idle arm draped like loose ribbon, two commas. An extra long pause. After so much exertion, there's respite. We've just bracketed, encircled one another. I don't want an ellipsis fade to black, but an arrest in time or a backward space to the first line in our story. Sex on the page. (laughs) Yes, sex via punctuation. But also then, uh, what I couldn't be conveyed as I read that is the punctuation in this poem. Two commas, comma, comma, an extra long pause. The pause is there. We've just bracketed, encircled in brackets. So this becomes a visual poem as well in many ways. You have to actually see it on the page. It's very hard to read that poem out and not see the actual punctuation marks because I wanted people to read it and then think, hang on, what is she talking about, about commas and brackets? But if you actually look at the punctuation mark, you can actually see what hap- you know. You can actually see the physical form of it and how that translates to the human body and how you when, when, you know there's that lovely curve. So it was just I mean I, I find sensuality in punctuation. <laughs> but what's interesting is you've picked up what you started in that first section, meta, yes. which was just a, a teasing playfulness with grammar. Mm-hmm. But now it has become more physical, and more st- personal, and yes. more personal mm-hmm. in that. Um, but it's still that playfulness with grammar, but it's taken on almost a new meaning. It's just a different way of looking at physicality. You know, people write about love and sex and desire so many times, but I'm pretty sure they haven't done it via punctuation. So I just wanted to do things a little bit differently so people can look at it and go, right, you're right. You know, when you when you circle someone, you are like a bracket. You know, you're coming, when you're two commas together, you're basically like spooning. So that's the physical form that I was actually really trying to convey. The image I love, and mm. I've forgotten which poem it's in now, is the ampersand. I never knew an ampersand could be so seductive. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was called the new lexicon. The new lexicon, but the, just the yeah. shape and curve mm. of an ampersand. But you see, my background as a teacher, I was trying to uh, persuade children not to use an ampersand, write the word out fully, and now I've got further cause for not wanting them to use it because it's politically incorrect in a school. <laughs> to have such suggestive images in their writing. I'll just read the first bit of that poem, which is quite long, but so it's called A New Lexicon. You are the day that tastes like mango, a silver asterisk on my night's page, 
We are hyphenated, bifurcated, locked in a bolt of ampersand. You and me, subject and predicate, what you do to me. So that's the start of that poem. And there's also the playfulness in the rhyme, bifurcated, hyphenated, mm-hmm. and, and so the, the, the playfulness there in rhyme as well to yes. create that seductiveness. There's the third section, Spaces, and you touch on uh, your life as a writer, to be a writer. First, why martyr yourself like this? A drive so masochistic and egotistic. Why write about the sun from the cool divide of your room? Consider when you are molting like a deciduous maple flaked off skin on floorboards. Your hide has taken a beating from pesky editors and gatekeepers to glory and legacy and eternity. You need quiet respite from the pricks of rivals, blooming garlands. You have to bury the hatchet, not the lead. Be as versatile as a Dickinson dash and be dexterous in your politics. And remember to have rich parents. The toss-away line there. The life of a writer. It is very much the life of a writer. You have to, yes, keep your ego in check and just concentrate on your work because there's so many things out there that will detract you from it. Plus, yeah, having rich parents helps, which I don't have. So it's it's like you have to just do it anyway for the pure love of it. Well, I mean, most writers don't, don't have, make yes. We don't have living. patrons, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah, we, we need more patronage. But, we do. But given the need for voices to, well, make us appreciate language. In my career as an English teacher, had I told the students that grammar was sexy, I, I think I would have been a little more <laughs> successful <laughs> oh, as a I would teacher. Be, I would be thrilled if this book went on the English curriculum because, you know, maybe they'll change their mind and think, hey, commas and semicolons are sexy. You've got a challenge there with what I you know. can say in front of children. I know, I know. Well, I'm thinking high school students, not, not specifically like primary schoolers, but yes. But the other thing here is the nature of the form of some of your poems and that grab our attention. Now, there are shape poems uh, that are in there. There are ones where you've dot-pointed almost, you know, why poetry? And it's a series of um, points about why uh, one should be a poet because psychologists are too expensive for bile and blood and regurgitation. But it comes out in a series of one, two, three, four, five. These are the reasons. Another one which is fascinating, which is almost like a slab on the page. I don't know if I've been absolutely polite in the way I've said that. Book blurb bingo. By golly, it's rollicking this sweeping saga palaver. You'll be a weeping because coming of age is all the rage. It's luminosity is a ferocity, a five-star recommended read. And I, I could go on. Yes. It goes for the page. But the, the teasing out of language, the connection of words, all in one paragraph without... Punctuation. punctuation. I was very deliberate with that poem. I wanted it to be a slab of, of breathlessness. So when you read it, there's, there's no punctuation because a lot of press releases that I receive as, as a critic and as an editor, it reads like that. It's like, you know, this is the best thing you've ever read. Like this is, and so it's like a hyperventing, hyperventilating prose that just run in each uh, other and it's very full on and it's exhausting to read. So I wanted to basically all the, all the stereotypes of, of the best book you've ever read since and push it in, into a book below bingo. All so. the cliches. All the cliches, That you yes. get. But, yes. I mean, reading is a case of discovering for yourself. Mm. Well, Twee, 
we can't go through every poem. No. <laughs> we would like to. I would love to stay here and go through every poem, but yes. But it's that playfulness yes. with language, that way. Grammar has become an image in its own right in many ways in the verses you put down. There are verse forms here that are traditional, but then you blow that apart with some of the others. And there are there's a, a, a teasing, a playfulness, but there's also a more serious sensuousness that we get and a new way of seeing things. So the collection is called Decadence. The poet is Tui On, and it's a University of Western Australia publishing release. So Tui, thank you very much for coming in and talking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. So we'll be back next week to talk with two more authors. And David. live in the studio. It's going to be exciting. It will be fun. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.